Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Um, as always, you can find me during the week on Facebook, and I actually posted a uh, really cool video the other, uh, actually this afternoon, I should say, um, about squids that live deep in the um, ocean. And one of the cool things about them is they actually have two different sized eyes. Um, and so you can watch the video and see more about why that is. So, um, yeah, definitely throughout the week, I am on Facebook posting things. So definitely go there. And again, this is evidence-based radio and, um, yeah, so let us get into tonight's stuff. Um, we, I actually, I wanted to start out tonight by telling you that next week we're going to have, I'm actually going to have a special guest on. And so the, I'm going to have on Sam Redman, who is a, um, he is a assistant professor of history at UMass. And he is actually, he studies the history of anthropology. And so, yeah, um, he actually specializes in 19th and century, 20th century U.S. history. And he wrote a book on the history of anthropology in the United States, especially in regards to human remains. And it's called Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory in Museums. And he's also an organizer of the Oral History Lab at UMass and much more. But obviously, I will give more details in next week's program. So for tonight, I want to start with a story that I actually meant to get to last week, um, but, you know, ran out of time. So for tonight, I want to start with that story. Let's talk about mammoths. Now, I have to admit that the idea of someone bringing back mammoths sounds on the surface amazing to me. I'd love to see fuzzy elephants roaming the tundra. Uh, I even have both a woolly mammoth and a mastodon beanie baby. <laughs> um, however, I want to talk about the reality of the situation, which is that this is probably not only a bad idea, but it's not nearly as um, as likely as people are making it out to be. And so basically what the scientists have actually proposed rather than bringing back a living, breathing mammoth in a couple of years is that they have said that they're projected to be able to produce a hybrid mammoth slash Asian, Asian elephant hybrid embryo in about two years. So basically what this means is that they would take an Asian elephant's genome and adjust it to produce more mammoth-like features. Our aim is to produce a hybrid elephant-mammoth embryo, says Professor George Church of Harvard University. Actually, it would be more like an elephant with a number of mammoth traits. We're not there yet, but it could happen in a couple of years. So even that is iffy. Now, their aim would be to produce an animal with small ears, subcutaneous fat, shaggy hair, and cold-adapted blood. 
But back to proto-mammoths. Um, the researchers have created a hybrid genome um, with 45 elements added to produce mammoth-like traits in the Asian elephant-based genome. They propose to use elephant skin cells to produce an embryo using cloning techniques. Nuclei from the edited cell would be inserted into an elephant egg cell that had been prepared for the new material. In addition to creating a proto-mammoth embryo, the team wants to go further and actually gestate the animal in an artificial womb. However, that technology uh, has also not yet reached a point where it could be successfully used. Now, to his credit, Church has two stated goals for the project. First off is obviously to help protect the Asian elephant, but also potentially uh, to actually use mammoths as a type of sort of living ecological remediation. Church notes that mammoths once, once helped the permafrost keep, stay frozen by punching holes through the snow to aid the flow of cold air to the surface and by knocking down trees in the wind, in the summer, which aided grass growth. Now, of course, again, I must stress that I would love to see real woolly mammoths roaming the tundra, and I understand the impulse to also try and save the endangered Asian elephant, and the African elephant for that matter. I think there are, I, I however think there are serious ethical implications of this work. Now, while it might make sense that if an organism once lived in an area, it could be easily put back into that area. However, there may have been changes to the environment that we know nothing about, and that could be greatly harmed by the reintroduction of extinct flora or fauna. De-extinction of animals that have not roamed the earth for around 4,000 years, for instance, could be fraught with all sorts of issues that we literally cannot even conceive of at this time. In addition, Matthew Cobb, professor of zoology at the University of Manchester, who was not involved in the study, commented to The Guardian, the proposed de-extinction of mammoths raises a masses, massive ethical issue. The mammoth was not simply a set of genes. It was a social animal, as is the modern Asian elephant. What will happen when the elephant-mammoth hybrid is born? How will it be greeted by elephants? So again, this brings up even a very practical issue with creating an animal that has no living relatives. Elephants are very intelligent animals, and they learn from their parents and relatives. If the hybrid animal was rejected by the elephants it's supposed to learn from, it could become isolated and despondent. So again, I'm all for pushing the boundaries of science, but maybe sometimes things are left best to the natural order. I know, it seems very odd for me to be saying that, um, because... I am definitely in favor of a large swath of messing with nature. Uh, nature is wonderful, but evolution is a messy and often brutal process that leads to all manner of bad outcomes for the organisms shaped by it. And so I definitely think that there are pros and cons here. Um, I think, unfortunately, right now, as far as creating a new kind of mammoth, the cons, I think, are still a little bit further uh, up on the scale for me than the pros, as much as I, again, totally 
totally want woolly mammoths. <laughs> totally want to be able to go and see a woolly mammoth in a zoo. Not going to lie. <laughs> okay. So part of the new era of manipulating and hopefully improving nature actually comes from the gene editing editing tool CRISPR, which is what Church is using to help create his hybrid uh, sort of mammoth, and which he also helped develop. And unfortunately, it's been in the news lately due to a recent patent dispute. Now, my personally, personal opinion on this is that something this powerful and useful probably shouldn't be patented. It should probably be available for people to use. But that's just my uh, very uh, biased opinion about patent rights and things like that. Um, but in case you don't know, uh, the CRISPR slash Cas9 uh, system was actually first developed in 2012. And so the technique was developed by studying a defense system in bacteria. And so they actually use this process to help fend off viruses. So the tool actually allows for an unprecedented level of precision in basically cutting and pasting sections of DNA into a pre-existing genome. And so it's led to an explosion in the ideas of how we can approach DNA manipulation. Now, many of these applications will actually no doubt be used in the area of medicine, which actually leads us to our next story. Now, this isn't actually a di discussion of CRISPR's use in medicine, but um, we will get back to CRISPR actually a little bit later. Instead, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about a story that personally I found rather heartening uh, because I have a rather um, strong phobia related to this story. Uh, they say that knowledge can be dangerous. And uh, so ever since I read about multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, uh, sometime back in the 1990s, I've been rather low-gradely terrified of catching it, despite the fact that my risk uh, factors for catching it are extremely low. Um, if you listen to the show regularly, you might know that one of my big fears is infectious diseases. So when I read a story about this um, next thing, I was pretty excited. So a new, small, uh, but again, exciting study out of South Africa suggests that extensively drug-resistant TB or XDR-TB, which is even harder to treat than the previous multi-drug-resistant TB, uh, can be treated with a simpler regime than the current arduous and, frankly, toxic concoction currently being used. So the current regime is so stressful and harmful that many patients do not even complete it. Standard treatment can take up to 2.5 years, often requires hospitalization, and includes painful injections. The disease is especially devastating to those with HIV, of which many of these patients are uh, co-infected, and it actually ends up killing more than 70% of patients who contract it. So the new regime, called NIX-TB, uh, combines three antibiotics that have not previously been combined to combat the disease. And so those are betaquilinine which came to market in 2012 specifically to fight TB, 
predomanid, which is also for TB but is still experimental, and linozolid, previously used mainly for skin infections and pneumonia. So again, this is a small study. It involved 34 patients with the disease, um, and they were treated in South Africa. And after six months, no TB bacillus was able to be cultured from the patient's sputum, which indicated that they were no longer infected. So the study's results were reported by Francesca Conradi of the University of Witwaterstrand in Johannesburg on the 15th of February at the Conference of Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Seattle, Washington. She went on to report that 20 of the patients stopped taking the drug at the six-month mark, and only one had a relapse. Now, again, while these results are very exciting, there are definitely still problems to be worked out. For instance, predomanid uh, is still not uh, approved, and so it has regulatory hurdles to be worked out. And as with any kind of drugs, price can be a problem, um, though at least one of the manufacturers has said that they would be willing to give a certain amount um, of the drug to efforts to combat this uh, infection. But one of the really big problems is that since, again, a large number of those with XDR-TB are co-infected with HIV, more work will really need to be done to check for possible drug interactions between the NICS-TB and antiretroviral drugs used to treat the HIV infection. So um, definitely promising, but again, as with a lot of these stories, it's kind of a, that's very exciting, but we're definitely going to have to see more um, of what is going on in a, at a future date. And so the next thing that I wanted to talk about is, again, related to CRISPR um, and actually also related to antibiotics. And this is actually not about CRISPR-Cas9, but rather about CRISPR-Cas3. And so there is a different version of the CRISPR uh, suite of um, tools. Basically, CRISPR involves DNA and enzymes that are used to um, manipulate the DNA. And so in CRISPR-Cas3, it's not doing what 9 does, which is basically taking almost like a scalpel um, and precisely cutting uh, out bits of DNA. Cas3 has actually been likened more to a chainsaw or rather delightfully Pac-Man. <laughs> what we're trying to do is kill bacteria, Rodolfe Barangu told Gizmodo. It's like a Pac-Man that's going to chew up DNA rather than make a clean cut. It chews it up beyond repair. It's lethal. Barangu first encountered CRISPR while working for Danisco, which is a Danish bio company and subsidiary of DuPont. He was working on sequencing Streptococcus thermophilus, which is used in yogurt and cheese production. 
And so he was actually one of the people who whose research actually led to the discovery of the CRISPR um the the CRISPR sequence and how to use it. So it's very cool. And in fact, he's slated to be awarded the 2017 National Academy of Sciences Award in in molecular biology for this work. Currently, he's a scholar in probiotic research and an associate professor at the North Carolina State University's Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences. Now, it turns out that Cas3 is actually much more common in nature than Cas9. In 2015, um, Baranju co-founded Locus Biosciences, a bioscience startup working to reprogram Cas3 to act as an antimicrobial agent in order to attack drug-resistant microbes such as um, E. coli, uh, C. difficile, and MRSA. And so I think that part of what is exciting about this is because it's so common in nature, hopefully it's easier to use um, or it's easy to use because um, CRISPR-Cas9 is pretty easy to use from what I understand, um, but it's very exciting. So he notes that antibiotics are indiscriminate. They target all bacteria in the body. If we can use CRISPR to selectively target a particular bacterial bacterial genotype and eradicate it, we can leave the rest of the microbiome intact. It's like a smart antibiotic because, of course, as he notes, antibiotics are indiscriminate. If you've ever had to take antibiotics, you know that they have definite side effects. Um, And so your own um, microbiota gets messed up um, along with helping you get better. So... um, Again, though, as with most everything, uh, this work is only in the earliest stages, um, and so many things could still happen that would lead to the therapy not being able to be used in humans. I've mentioned before the fact that things often look extremely, extremely promising in a lab, and then they do mouse testing, and the mouse testing goes really well, and so they do... um, stage one and stage two testing and everything looks fine. And then they get to stage three or four testing and something happens and suddenly they realize they've been going down a completely wrong path and this is not something that they're going to be able to use. Hopefully that's not going to happen in this case, but I always like to remind people that um, stage three and four trials are often... uh, the the road to it to um regulation or to approval uh is very rocky and um there are a lot of pitfalls in um stage three and four trials so um we will i will definitely keep an eye on this and hopefully it will become a novel way to attack some of those deadly microbial affections um, that humans now face and are increasingly hard to tackle with current antibiotics. And so 
One of the other things, though, is that if they do manage to get it into development, they hope that there'll be less regulatory red tape than with Cas9. Um, and I just thought this was kind of funny and also a little bit worrying um, that part of the problem with Cas9 is, of course, that people have uh, imagined that it would be used to create designer babies or super soldiers or other potentially dystopian outcomes. <laughs> so, um, you know, he said that one of the things about Cast uh, 3 is that it's just destroying things that are already there. It's not changing anything or creating anything new. So um, hopefully there'll be less regulatory red tape. Um so yeah. Okay. So again, on the topic of medicine, I wanted to take a minute to talk about something that I just read about this afternoon and I think is very cool. Um, unfortunately, it probably won't stick, but I'm going to talk about it right now for a moment because it makes me happy. <laughs> so it's being reported that Google has delisted roughly 140,000 pages from the Quack website natural news. Owned by Mike Adams, who laughably calls himself the health ranger, the site is a hotbed of quack medicine, conspiracy theories, and fake news. Now, this has led to Adams going on what is really an epic tirade um, against the action. And so, among other things, he notes that the real agenda of the humanity-hating globalist agenda is now on full display. It's about total domination over all information so that humanity never learns that cancer can be prevented with vitamin D or that glyphosate herbicide causes cancer or that statin drugs are a multi-billion dollar medical scam. Now, the reality here, though, is that probably the real reason that they've been delisted is almost certainly not because Google is actually trying to make the uh, internet a better place for the world um, and to start working on actually pulling off fake news and dangerous information, but rather some sort of technical issue such as third-party redirects. Um, and so, of course, according to Adams, this isn't, this is really just a personal attack on him. Um, and he's even going so far as to say that it is part and parcel of some sort of, and I'm not joking, final solution being planned by the so-called global elite. Um, so yeah, you can see that this is clearly a very well-adjusted and, uh, normal person who totally should be giving people health advice. Not at all. Um, so, um, and in fact, one of the things that he is most notorious for, um, he did actually have to take this down, but there was actually a moment on his website where there was a Ebola, uh, supposed cure that actually told people to inject, uh, a bit of Ebola into themselves. Um, so yeah, not a good place. Um, so again, no matter the reason for the delisting, I'm going to say good riddance and hope that they don't figure out why they've been delisted for real in order to once again clog up Google search results with terrible health suggestions, outright fake news, 
and conspiracy theories. Um, Mike Adams is also someone who has basically outright called for the murder of um, scientists who um, create and support GMOs, for instance. Um, so yeah, he's not a very nice guy. So really, I'm going to be very happy about this, uh, even though I'm pretty sure that someone in his organization will figure it out. And sadly, they'll end up being back. Okay, so one more thing in medicine of a sort. And I really I cannot believe that I'm saying this uh, in the current political climate, but I do want to end tonight's segment on health-related news with a shout out to members of Congress. Um, and so a bipartisan group of House and Senate Health Committee leaders has issued a letter defending vaccines. This includes Republican Senator Lamar Alexander and Democratic Senator Pat Patty Murray. And so while not attacking the president by name, the target audience of the letter is fairly clear, especially in light of recent remarks by Robert Kennedy Jr. and his supposed chumminess with the Republican president. The letter states in part, as members of Congress, we have a critical role in to play in supporting the availability and use of vaccines to protect Americans from deadly diseases. Already this year, states and communities around the country have reported outbreaks of measles, mumps, and whooping cough. The reasons for these outbreaks vary, but we know there are increasing trends around the country that have led to lower vaccination rates in some communities, allowing outbreaks of infectious diseases to take hold with increasing frequency. And it encourages other members of Congress to stand up for vaccines and to help prevent once-conquered diseases from erupting again in our nation, um, as we have already started to see with outbreaks, again, of measles, mumps, whooping cough, all of these things that, you know, for a long time, we didn't even have in this country. Um, and it's just... It's really upsetting, um, but it's time to take a break. <laughs> so let us take a break and I'm going to play some PSAs and then we'll come back and switch and talk about different and more interesting things. So hang on for a second. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. CDC estimates that one in six Americans gets food poisoning each year. Some germs, like listeria, can be deadly for certain people. It targets older adults, people with weakened immune systems, and pregnant women and their newborns. People with listeria infection usually require hospital care, and about one in five who are infected die or miscarry. Know your risk of listeria food poisoning. If you're 65 or older, have a weakened immune system, or are pregnant, you must be especially careful when selecting, preparing, and storing foods. Heat hot dogs and deli meats until steaming hot. 
Do not consume raw, unpasteurized milk or soft cheeses made from it. And be aware that soft cheeses made from pasteurized milk have also been associated with listeria infections and outbreaks. Learn more about how to prevent listeria food poisoning at cdc.gov slash vital signs. Brothers and sisters, the time has come for each and every one of you to decide. It takes five seconds, five seconds of decision. It takes five seconds to realize that it's time to move. Get yourself to downtown Northampton, Mass. on Friday nights where a party has been going on for 26 years at the Valley's only all-ages, shoe-free, substance-free, alcohol-free, smoke-free dance spree. Six resident DJs, DJ Liquid G, DJ July, DJ Wheeler, DJ Alan S, DJ Zoe, and DJ Root, that's me, with a handle on booty-shaking tunes from yesterday and today. Club, disco, hip-hop, world beat, funky breaks, progressive trance, oldies, swing, salsa, waltzes, and more. Part of the larger Dance New England network, Dance Spree has been providing a home for a vibrant and diverse community of folks who love to dance to a variety of music in a healthy atmosphere. Come check it out. Volunteers are always appreciated. Info online at dancespree.org or come by 8.30 p.m. Friday nights, 25 Main Street, 4th Floor, downtown Northampton, Massachusetts. Lieutenant Colonel Reverend Eubanks Juni the Third here, your humble host of the Double Bubble Hour, now on every Sunday night from eight till nine p.m. WXOJLP one hundred three point three FM, or tune in on ValleyFreeRadio.org. Three thousand six hundred seconds of fun. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pothry Geekery. What are we doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton. Massachusetts. And we are back with more evidence-based radio. And so, like I said, we're going to move on from talking about medical stories. And we're talking about something that's really interesting. Um, And so this is how evolution can affect species that are very close to one another and in a fairly short amount of time. So um, the lower Congo River is filled with bizarre and colorful fishes. And it seems odd, actually fish, um, fish is the plural of fish. Um, Anyways, uh, so it might seem odd, 
that there are actually so many of them, more than 300 different species, all in one section of one river system. So a report in the journal Molecular Ecology earlier this month suggests that species end up cut off from one another by what they refer to as walls of water. So basically, rapids and swift currents keep members of one species divided for long enough that they eventually develop into separate species. So um, geographic geographical isolation is a well-known mechanism for evolutionary action. What's particularly unique about the Lower Congo is that this diversification is happening over extremely small spatial scales, over distances as small as 1.5 kilometers, 0.9 miles. Study author Elizabeth Alter, a biologist at the City University of New York's York College, said in a statement, there is no other river like it. So I did say one part of one river, but the Congo is a pretty amazing river. Uh, the lower Congo uh, is some 200 miles long, and that is the last part of a river that is almost 3,000 miles long. And so this part runs through the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, before emptying into the Atlantic Ocean. Now, parts of the river are so treacherous that they weren't navigated until 2008. And so other sections are still unable to be traveled on, like the 21-mile stretch between the cities of Matadi and Kinganga, which is filled with whitewater rapids and waterfalls. So Alter and her team found that it was these rapids which caused fish to diverge while being geographically right next to one another. And so the study involved the, um, the chicklids, uh, which is a pretty, uh, chicklids are actually a pretty uh, common kind of fish. And so they were looking at members of the genus Teleogramma, um, which includes large-finned rainbow-banded fish called Teleogramma vichiardi. And so what they ended up doing is they looked at more than 50 fishes from different species, and they were able to determine with confidence that they were isolated by various sets of rapids. The genetic separation between these fishes shows that the rapids are working as strong barriers, keeping them apart, Alter said. Unfortunately, as with much of this world, the fish face increasing pressure and have become critically endangered due to nearby urbanization. And unfortunately, there is also a proposal for a hydroelectric dam, which would fundamentally alter the current river flow, making the future of these colorful fish uncertain. Um, one of the real problems um, with hydroelectric dams is that hydroelectric power is, you know, considered green power and is considered, you know, better than other ways of getting power. And there's a lot of people who need power. But unfortunately, they do very much affect the um, flow of rivers and, um, 
you know, we have a lot of problems with that in the United States of different kinds of fish that have been really badly impacted by um, dams and by other ways that people affect river systems. And so that's definitely one of those uh, unfortunate gray areas of um, ethical uh, environmentalism um, that definitely uh, are out there and that we are constantly having to think about. Okay, so now that we've all been depressed, <laughs> let's talk about something much nicer. Uh, and so we're going to go back to South Africa for this story. And um, I was, you know, looking for stories um, for tonight. And um, Live Science actually had one of their stories, which is like a reference story. And um, it reminded me of this because I have heard of this before. So I wanted to share with you about um, this really excellent archaeological site called Thulamela. Um, and so this was actually a large city of around 22 acres, and it's located on what is now the northern tip of Kruger National Park. And so it was ha inhabited between the 13th and the 17th centuries. So the city-state was clearly prosperous, um, and it even showed ties to trade routes that reached to China. What we can say from the archaeological evidence uncovered at the site is that a stratified community lived at Thulamela. Elites, probably on the top of the hill, while the rest of the populace occupied the adjacent areas below. It is commonly said that about a thousand people lived above and two thousand people below, although this is speculative since no systematic survey or remote sensing has been conducted wrote Lynn Meskel, an anthropology professor at Stanford University, in a paper published in 2007 in the journal South African Studies. Sorry, Southern African Studies. And so Thulamela is actually a modern world word, and it means place of birth or hunted meat uh, in the language of the Venda people who currently occupy the area around the ancient city. And so during the excavation, the remains of a man and a woman were found buried with a variety of um, gold jewelry, which suggested they were of high status, possibly royalty. Now, the remains of the man were not well preserved, but the women, woman's bones suggested that she was around 5'7", robustly built, and between 45 and 60 years old when she died. Now, the skeletons were ceremoniously reburied in their original graves uh, shortly after the discovery and examination at the request of the Venda people. Um, and so they did conduct a ceremonial um, reburial. And um, this is something that I'm hoping to talk more about in a later program. I'm hoping to um, have another guest on to talk about... Um, to further talk about, since we'll probably talk about uh, human remains next uh, week, but just to talk about sort of the ethics involved in um, sort of doing Western archaeology and Western science on the human remains and the cultural artifacts of other cultures. Um, and so part of this is because I went to a really great conference, um, this past Saturday, it was just a mini conference about, um, 
it was basically about conservation and about decay and about the ethics of conservation. And um, there were some really interesting things that I learned and um, thought about that I hadn't really thought about in a while. Um, and so I met some great people and I'm hoping to share some of that with you um, because I think it's really um, good and important things to think about. Okay, so let's go back to uh, Thula Mela. Um, and so what they also found um, were the remains of Chinese porcelain and glass beads along with other trade goods, which again um, suggested that they were part of a trade network where the export of iron, copper, gold, and tin from Southern Africa via the Indian Ocean trade network was exchanged for glass beads and other luxury goods, thus demonstrating economic contact with North Africa, the Middle East, India, and China, wrote Meskel in her 2007 paper. They also apparently had trade contact with people on the east coast of Africa, with a large variety of marine mollusks having been found on the site as well. And so the inhabitants of the city not only created beautiful gold work, but also artifacts of copper, iron, and bronze, including a double iron gong found near the grave of the couple and possibly used as a status of as a symbol of status or royalty. And they note that there are similarities between the gold and other artifacts manufactured at the site with those of other city-states nearby, including um, one that you might actually have be more likely to have heard of, which is Great Zimbabwe. And um, that flourished between about 1100 and 1450. And so um, Mariana Stein um notes in the 1998 paper published uh, by her team in the South African Archaeological Bulletin that at the end of the 16th century, the people of Thulamela still prospered, but from then on, the slow drying out of the region, the influence of the Portuguese and civil war in Zimbabwe probably made life untenable. The site was abandoned early in the 17th century. And so it then basically remained, um, you know, hidden, quote unquote. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about these ancient cities being discovered or rediscovered and, you know, people around there totally knew they were there. Um, so I can only imagine that there were at least some people who knew the ruins were there, but they were formally rediscovered um, by a park ranger in 1983. Um, but unfortunately, at the time, South Africa was still embroiled in um, apartheid, and so they were not able to be fully excavated and restored until the 1990s. Um, and so now they, the site is semi-preserved, um, and uh, it also you know, does have the added benefit of being in the nature preserve. And so, yeah, um, there are a lot of these really amazing um, city-states in Southern Africa around this time. Um, again, this is one of those things that you have to remember that sort of what you were taught in uh, high school history 
was uh, a pretty narrow slice of what was actually going on in the world. I know I certainly didn't learn about anything going on in Africa, except for maybe the slave trade uh, in world history um, as a child. So, um, you know, these amazing archaeological um, places and obviously people who are still there um, who have continual traditions for thousands of years of, you know, actual living and, um, you know, existing in these places. And there's a lot of that that, you know, especially in America, we just don't learn about. Um, <sighs> anyways, <laughs> now this is another one of those things, uh, stories, much like the praising Congress people, um, that I can't believe that I'm having to talk about, but here it is. So, um, again, this is a rather odd situation. So British physicist, Dr. Brian Cox, who I generally have a lot of respect for, um, and who is very good at popularizing, um, science and getting people interested in science has rather bizarrely, at least to me and to some others, uh, come out with a statement asserting that the Large Hadron Collider has disproven the existence of ghosts. Now, I think someone sort of asked him a question. He was, I think he was on a Q&A show, and I don't think he did it deliberately, but, you know, he made a very bold statement saying, basically, I think that since we haven't found anything that would suggest to uh, scientists that it would be something that's that ghosts could be made of. Um, and we've had all of these discoveries at the Hadron Collider that, you know, there are no ghosts. Um, now, I don't want to <laughs> suggest that I actually believe in ghosts. Um, I obviously do not believe in ghosts, um, not for a second, uh, at least not in the supernatural realm. I think that people do experience weird things, um, but I think they're largely neurological or are part of some as yet understood natural phenomena. Um, for instance, um, hallucinations are actually a lot more common than people realize, and our brains are shaped to do certain things that don't necessarily map to modern living. And so sometimes our brain interprets uh, movements and sounds and sights as things that aren't there. I mean, you know, how often do you have to take a double take looking at something because you thought there was something there? And when you look back, there's nothing there. You know, it's that kind of a thing. Um, you know, some people might interpret that as there was a ghost there and now it's gone. Um, I had that happen to me a couple of times yesterday. I looked at something and I was like, wait, what? Um, and then when I looked back, it looked totally normal. Um, so I think that, you know, there are definitely real things that are happening to people. I don't think that people are crazy or, you know, lying or anything like that, but I don't think that there's anything supernatural about it. And, um, so I was reading a, um, article by Ryan Mandelbaum, uh, in Gizmodo, uh, this morning. And he also pointed out, uh, very, 
um, vehemently <laughs> that just because we've found a lot of things at the Large Hadron Collider and other places doesn't mean that physics can definitively rule out ghosts at a, as a manifestation of some yet unfound particle. And in fact, he points out that CERN's own website talks about particles such as axions that are theorized, but as yet undetected. And so the website actually describes axions thusly. The axion is a neutral and very light, but not massless, particle, and it does not interact, or does very weakly, with conventional matter. In some way, one can see the axion as a quote-unquote strange photon. In fact, theory predicts that the axion, if it exists, could transform into a photon, and vice versa in the presence of electromagnetic fields. That sounds, as he put it, a lot like a ghost. <laughs> um, so again, definitely don't actually believe in ghosts. And um, one of the big reasons for that has nothing to do with, well, I guess it does have to do with physics, um, but also has to do with biology. Um, I don't believe that there's any way that consciousness can survive death. Our consciousness is very much rooted in our body, not just our mind, but in the full experience of our body's workings. And I see no way in which that could be separated from the fleshy bits of our existence to persist in any way, shape, or form after the fleshy bits have given up. Um, and, but, the reason I bring this up is because it's important to be clear about what science can and cannot do. And actually stating unequivocally that ghosts don't exist just isn't one of those things, at least for now. <laughs> okay, so I also wanted to talk about this story because I think it's pretty, um, it's another one of those sort of stories about science. Um, and it's also in the realm of physics. So scientists last month announced that they had discovered what had been hailed as the holy grail of high pressure physics. So a group at Harvard claimed that they'd turned a sample of hydrogen into a metal, something that physicists have been trying to achieve for more than 80 years. Not only that, but they claimed that the material would be stable, making it the only hydrogen metal sample on the planet. However, there now turns out to be a bit of a problem. The sample has disappeared. Now, you first might think, was this some sort of, you know, disgruntled postdoc or a rival researcher swiping the sample? But nothing so, uh, <laughs> so um, ridiculous. It actually turns out that one of the diamonds in the vice um, actually shattered. And so it had been held in a diamond vise um, with some artificial diamonds. And the researchers had been using that to hold the sample. And uh, when one of them failed catastrophically, uh, the sample was unfortunately lost. Now, the thing is, is that it was actually only around 1.5 microns thick and 10 microns in diameter to begin with. Um, which is about a fifth the diameter of a human hair. So they note that it could very well be somewhere in the lab undetected, or it could have gone up in a proverbial puff of smoke. So the researchers were storing the sample in the aforementioned diamond vise 
at around 80 Kelvin or negative 316 degrees Fahrenheit. And so when the researchers tried to conduct a second round of tests on the metal, the device broke and the sample was lost. Team leader Isaac F. Silvera, who has spent the last 45 years or so trying to create this elusive substance, is actually rather sanguine about its fate. Basically, it's disappeared, he told Science Alert. It's either someplace at room room pressure, very small, or it just turned back into a glass. Gas. We don't know. (laughs) Now, for now... They're focused on creating a better vice and starting over. And the reason for all the hype around this substance is that it is theorized to have some pretty amazing properties, such as being a superconductor and being able to store a vast amount of energy that could be used in applications like rocket fuel. Now, of course, there are some skeptics of the entire enterprise. A few physicists have noted that they are unconvinced by the paper And unfortunately, with the sample lost or gone, the team must regroup to prove more conclusively that they have achieved their goal. Now, they were actually able to test the reflectivity of the substance, which proved to their satisfaction that the sample was a metal. Um, But they were unable to test whether it was a liquid or a solid or whether it conducted electricity. Sadly, when the sample was lost, it was actually being prepared to be sent to the Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago for further testing. And again, they were conducting a second test when the laser failed. Um, And so basically, they, uh, you know, I mean, it seemed like a good idea because it had happened. It had worked the first time. (laughs) And again, Silvera is optimistic about the whole thing. This disappearance doesn't say anything about the validity of the sample. Anyone who does high pressure, high pressure works knows that you have failures like this. The important thing is the measurements that we made of the refle- of the reflectance, and those are solid, he said. So it's not a setback. It's just a disappointment that we were unable to make more measurements on the samples. There's always going to be people who are skeptical of things, and my advice to them is to try and reproduce the experiment. We've shown exactly what we did to get to the high pressures and achieve the metallic hydrogen in the lab, so other teams can try it too, he added. That's the scientific method, and it's better than just complaining about our results. (laughs) Okay, um... So that is all the time we have for tonight. Um, We, again, I'll be back next week um, with a special guest. And so, yeah, have a great night and please stay tuned for Civil Politics.